These are proteins in our body that have been changed through an extended exposure with sugar or fat. These compounds increase the oxidative damage that happens in our body. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Kirkwood, Missouri, Fresno, California, and Vitoria, Brazil. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 85 of season 5, number 384 overall. And today we have a study for the ages. No, I'm not talking about a number on a calendar or what's on your driver's license, but a term that you may not yet be familiar with. Advanced glycation end products. Ages. We're going to be finding out what they are and why you probably don't want a lot of them in your diet. A new study finds that by ridding yourself of these ages, there's a good chance you'll lose a lot of weight. And if you're someone who has diabetes, there's big benefits there as well. And for all of us, you can also cut your risk of heart disease way down as well. And the person leading that study is here with us today. Dr. Hanna Kaliova. And what she did was, pardon the pun here, she showed that fewer ages means healthier aging. So with this study, the participants cut down on the ages in their diet. They cut out meat, they cut out dairy, they ate a low-fat plant-based diet, and the results were striking. And oh, by the way, during our conversation, you're also going to hear Dr. Kaliova talk about some surprising sources of ages, things that you wouldn't necessarily think would have them, including some meat alternatives, the ever popular plant-based meats that are flooding store shelves. So she has a great presentation for us that she walks us through. It's about 20 minutes today, and then we're going to be doubling down on new research today. Dr. Neil Barnard is back with his newest study on menopause. He wanted to confirm his original findings that a low-fat vegan diet can really help to alleviate unwanted menopausal symptoms, including hot flashes. So was this first study, one that put a heavy focus on soy, was that a fluke? Or does this second study shut the door on doubt? So quite a bit to discover today. What every woman should know about helping to control menopause is coming up in just a bit. But first, ages. What they are, why they matter, and why you'll want to pay close attention to how many you're piling on your plate. Lead researcher, Dr. Hanna Kaliova is with us now on The Exam Room. Dr. K, medicine woman, so good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Chuck. This is an exciting study. 
Honestly, I had no idea what in the world ages were until you sent this to me. So let's start right there because I think a lot of exam roomies are wondering that very thing. What in the world is an advanced glycation end product? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Chuck. Uh, there are so many reasons why uh, a plant-based diet is good for your health. It's low in saturated fat and cholesterol and rich in fiber, high in antioxidants. It's low in heme iron. And now we're talking about advanced glycation end products, uh, which are molecules uh, that cause inflammation and damage in your body. Uh, the less of advanced glycation end products you have in your body, the better. And we looked into the effect of a plant-based diet on advanced glycation end products and its association with body weight, uh, body composition, and insulin sensitivity. Uh, so uh, what are the advanced glycation end products or the AGEs as we call them? These are proteins in our body that have been changed through an extended exposure with sugar or fat. First, they form the early glycation end products. Uh, that happens fast, within a, within a few days. And then uh, if the exposure to sugar and fat in your bloodstream continues, uh, then the proteins uh, form the advanced glycation end products or the AGEs. And we can measure them in your bloodstream. We can measure them in, the, in your skin. Uh, and uh, these compounds increase the oxidative stress uh, you, you've probably heard the term before. Uh, that means the oxidative damage that, that happens in our body. Uh, and uh, they also increase chronic inflammation, uh, immune system imbalance, and tissue injury. And they are the molecules that are behind the development of cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and liver disease and metabolic disease such as diabetes and cancer and neurodegeneration neuro uh, such as Alzheimer's disease, um, immune problems. Uh, in other words, uh, you don't want these in your body. So the lower uh, their level in your body, the better. Uh, now, how do we get the AGEs in our body? Uh, some of them are being formed uh, during metabolism. Uh, as we eat food, they are being formed and released in, into our bloodstream. But some of them uh, are being consumed in the diet. Uh, the foods that are particularly high in AGEs are the processed meats and cheese, uh, but they're also contained in processed grains. Uh, and for example, chocolate, you know, the sugary, uh, the sugary, the sugar sweetened beverages and, and sh sugary foods. Uh, so in other words, uh, we consume them in our diet uh, and You've probably heard that when you grill meat, the AGEs are being formed, especially when you when 
when the food gets uh, gets like dark brown and almost br- almost black. And the consumption of dietary AGEs has been shown to increase body weight, uh, also visceral fat, and insulin resistance, uh, independent of caloric intake. A lot of attention um, has been directed toward cooking methods. So when you, for example, microwave chicken, the amount of AGEs will double But when you grill chicken, uh, then the AGEs will go up six times. Well, that's true for meat. But what about other, other foods? What about plant foods? It turns out that, for example, boiled potatoes or apples are much, much lower in AGEs compared with chicken and with other meats. So that that led us to um, ask the question, what if we put people on a vegan diet? Uh, What what will happen to their AGEs? So that's exactly what we did. We had 240 overweight people uh, who were randomly assigned to follow either a low-fat vegan diet that consisted of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, or to stay on their usual diet for 16 weeks. Now, uh, we were tracking their body weight, uh, their body composition uh, using a DEXA scan. We were tracking their insulin resistance, and uh, they gave us detailed uh, diet records at the beginning and at the end of the study. And based on that, uh, we ran all the foods in, in, from, from the database and we looked up how many AGEs they were consuming. Now, over the course of 16 weeks, people lost about 14 pounds on a vegan diet. That's about one pound a week. That's very consistent with uh, our previous findings. Uh, about two-thirds of the weight loss was due to fat loss. They also lost a lot of visceral fat around the inner organs. That's the metabolically most dangerous fat. Uh, Also, insulin resistance was decreased, which is a good finding. Now, the dietary AGEs were reduced by 80% on the the vegan diet, which is just mind-blowing. Now, where did all the... all the reduction of the AGEs come from. 55% of the reduction came from meat. Obviously, on a vegan diet, you don't eat any meat. So the AGEs coming from meat were decreased by 55% of the AGE reduction came from the fact that people were not eating any meat. So that was the majority. Uh, not eating any dairy was responsible for 26% decrease in, in the total AGEs. And what also helped is, is that the vegan diet was low fat. We minimized the consumption of oils. Uh, and also, obviously, on a vegan diet, you don't use any animal fats. Uh, and that was responsible for 15% of the AGEs reduction. Uh, we found significant correlations. Um, 
one thing is to reduce the AGEs in the diet, but was it was it somehow associated with weight loss and the improvements in metabolism? And the answer is yes. Uh, the reduction in dietary AGEs was also associated with weight loss, improved body composition, that means lower fat mass, lower visceral fat, and increased insulin sensitivity, independent of caloric intake. Because some of you may be asking, you know, is it because people are eating less calories on a plant-based diet? No, that was completely independent of caloric intake. Uh, so in summary, a plant-based diet uh, reduced dietary AGEs significantly, and this was also associated with weight loss, improved body composition, and improved insulin sensitivity, independent of energy intake. So are advanced glycation end products aging you? Don't let them. And I'm ready for your questions. <laughs> Good, because I have a few for you. Um, fascinating study. My first question is about how plant-based foods have fewer ages than others. So the examples that you cited in the study were boiled potatoes and an apple. But what about foods that are cooked in a drier way? So I like roasted Brussels sprouts. Like I love roasted Brussels sprouts, but they're cooked at a drier heat and maybe a higher heat. So because of that, are they more likely to have more ages than those boiled potatoes just because they're cooked in a different way? That's a great question. If you toast bread or if you toast or if you grill something in the oven, if you bake something in the oven, uh, generally speaking, the dry heat will increase the amount of AGEs in your foods, uh, regardless of the origin of the foods. But what you need to keep in mind is that all the plant foods are much lower in AGEs to start with. So let's say, um, you know, a slice of bread would have 50 kilo units of AGEs uh, per 100 grams. And by toasting the bread, you would increase the amount of AGEs to 75 or even 100, that would be still super low compared to the animal products. Uh, so is it is it better to boil the potatoes, for example, than bake them in terms of AGEs? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you're sticking to a plant-based diet, um, then your diet will be automatically much lower in AGEs compared with someone who, who eats animal products. And did you talk about different cooking methods with the people who were in the study? Not at all. Yeah, that's a good point. Not at all. Uh, the participants in the study were not instructed in any, in any way on which cooking methods they should be using. Uh, so even without any instructions, their amount of AGEs went down by 80%. There's a quote in the study that stood out to me, and it made me wonder how much meat these participants were eating going into this. So this is verbatim now from the study. You wrote, quote, their consumption of animal-derived foods was significant, end quote. So I hear that and I'm wondering, are we talking about meat for breakfast, for lunch and dinner too? 
<laughs> exactly. It's a standard American diet. So, of course, we're talking about daily consumption of meat. Uh, one finding that's really surprising uh, for me personally, you know, we know from, from the nutritional um, tables and the content of AGEs, that processed meats are the highest in AGEs. And so I was looking at which, which foods and which meats contributed most to the reduction of AGEs. So I was expecting that the processed meat would be the biggest driver. But that, that was not the case. It was white meat that was the biggest contributor. So when people stopped eating meat, uh, most people already know that processed meat and red meat, they're kind of, you know, risky and they increase your risk of colon cancer and so many, so many other uh, issues. So most of people, most people uh, think that they're eating healthy when they eat m the majority of meat in the form of white meat. Uh, but getting away from all meat um you know, reduce the AGEs the most. Uh, and specifically, the majority was coming from white meat because um, people were consuming white meat as healthy food. And look, it's not just that group either. I think that most people around the world think that poultry is probably going to be healthy. But what we've seen here and what we've talked about on the show time and again is that really it's not. I'll tell you, another interesting thing from this study was that there was a really big caloric drop for the group that went vegan versus the control group that didn't. So with the vegan group coming in, they were averaging about 1,800 calories. But then during the study, that dropped all the way down to 1,300 calories a day. And for the control group who really didn't make many changes to their diet, it went from 1,800 to 1,650 or so. My question to you is this, does the caloric drop alone explain a lot of this or could you find the same results if somebody were eating that initial 1800 calories a day, but specifically only eating a low fat plant-based diet? That's an excellent question. And in fact, this is one of the strengths of, of, the, of, a, of a vegan diet. Uh, when people start eating a vegan diet, the fiber just fills them up and they feel satiated. They don't need to eat more. And if you want to lose weight, this is a great advantage because you are satisfied with less calories. Uh, and as a result, you will, you will start losing weight. But that's not the only mechanism behind weight loss on a plant-based diet. We also showed that a vegan diet increases metabolism. It can increases the thermic effect of food, which is the amount of calories that are being released once we eat a meal uh, in the form of heat. So wouldn't that be nice if we could just burn off the extra calories in the form of heat <laughs> whenever we eat? And that's exactly what started happening in this particular study. Uh, so uh, reducing the calories is just one, uh, one part of the picture. Another one is increasing the metabolism, which is another mechanism um, behind weight loss in this particular study. And you asked an an important question. 
is the reduction in AGEs driven by the reduction in calories? And the answer is no. It's completely independent. It's it's based on the foods that are that you're eating, the types of foods, uh, also the associations with weight loss and improved body composition and improved insulin sensitivity. Uh, these associations remain significant after adjustment for caloric intake. Uh, so it's not about how many calories you're eating. It's about what kind of foods you're eating. A couple more before I let you go here. You did a really good job, you and your team did, of breaking down the amount of ages that are found in different types of foods. And what we saw with the vegan group, though, interestingly, was that there was actually an increase in the amount of ages in a person's diet that were coming from legumes and whole grains. Kind of wondered for a second, what that was all about. Is it just because they're eating more of these things now than they were before? That's exactly right. Uh, And you just nailed it. Yeah. People were eating more AGEs from legumes, for example, because they were not eating many beans to start with. Uh, And yet it's beans are not a significant source of AGEs compared with meat or dairy or added fats. So even with the increase of AGEs from legumes, their overall AGEs just plummeted over the course of 16 weeks. And we also saw a rise in the number of ages for the vegan group that are found in meat alternatives. So plant-based meats, the very ones that we see sold in stores, are they a little bit higher in ages than whole plant foods? That's correct. Uh, Processed foods in general Uh, tend to be higher in AGEs compared with fresh produce. Uh, So the more minimally processed foods you consume, the better off you are in terms of AGEs. But at the same time, this is not a reason to exclude them completely from the diet because still, you know, even when including all the soy milk and all the roasted bread and uh, all the roasted potatoes and all the baked goods, uh, people are still reducing their total AGEs by 80%. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Were there any other changes that you guys made to the diets, like maybe fasting? Or was this more of a case of just eat a low-fat plant-based diet and we're going to see what happens? it was the latter. Uh, it was just go vegan, uh, keep keep the fat content low. The, the upper limit for fat intake was uh, 30 grams per day. Uh, we instructed the participants to minimize the, the consumption of oils, to saute their onions and vegetables in uh, vegetable broth or soy sauce or water instead of oil and also minimize other fatty foods such as nuts and avocados. And obviously most of the packaged foods are are out because of the high fat content. There you go. That is your new phrase for the day, advanced glycation end products. And you, my friend, are probably going to want to eat fewer of them in order to live a longer and healthier life. Dr. Hanna Kaliova, thank you again for your time. Just absolutely brilliant research. Thanks, Chuck.
you can find a link to Dr. Kaliova's Ages study right now in the episode notes. And also there is a link for you to check out her full presentation on YouTube so you can actually see her data in motion. Really interesting to see a lot of these graphs. It helps to put a lot of what it was we were talking about today into perspective. You know, I have a new perspective, by the way, on the city of St. Louis. I had never been there before, but I was there recently, and I had a chance to visit the Center for Plant-Based Living while I was there, and man, is this place ever impressive. I was there for three days helping out with a project that they're doing, and the entire time that we were there, there were people walking in off of the street saying, I had heard about you guys. What can you do to improve my health? I was blown away. We would get ready to do a take or two, and then somebody else would walk through the door and say, hey, I've got this going on. I've got that going on. Can you help me get going with a plant-based diet? And Karen Dugan, who is the lead there, was absolutely on point. I was just blown away. And there was also a really nice dinner that was served for a lot of members of the Center for Plant-Based Living that was there too. It was an early vegan Thanksgiving. And man, did they ever cook up a feast. Holy cow, got the opportunity to break the proverbial plant-based bread with a lot of nice exam roomies who happened to be from the St. Louis area. That was really nice to meet Ted and the crowd there. It was so inspiring and I just can't wait to go back. Absolutely cannot wait to go back. So if you are in fact in the St. Louis area, check them out and maximize your health at CPBL dash stl.com that's cpbl dash stl.com so that's the center for plant-based living in st louis there's a link to that as well in the episode notes and karen dugan as i said she's kind of the lead there and dr jim loomis our friend here he also does a lot of coaching there can get you going in that healthier direction and they'll teach you how to cook too i mean that may be the best part of all of this Right, You learn about the health benefits, but then to apply them, not just to your own health, but to your plate. I mean, come on, come on. That's so good. So we have another position open at the Physicians Committee, and I would love for you to come work with me. I mean, this would be so much fun to collaborate. We are looking for a print and digital designer which is someone to help create all of these wonderful graphics that we have up on our website, some of the things you see on social media, our newsletters, and this person would even be tasked with designing our magazine. It's called Good Medicine, really fun read. And this is a fantastic and creative way to get our healthy message out, and we could use your help. And there's a link right now to apply for that position right now in the episode notes, or just log on to pcrm.org slash careers. It'd be really cool to collaborate with you, my friend. pcrm.org slash careers is the website to go to to apply today, or just click that link in the episode notes. And we will be turning our attention back to some more new research in just 30 seconds. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. 
That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. In July of 2021, Dr. Neil Barnard and colleagues here at the Physicians Committee published a study on severe hot flashes. And their findings showed that women who ate a low-fat plant-based diet that included soy were able to drastically drop the number of hot flashes they were having every day. Dropped it from an average of about five to right around just one. And all of these improvements came in less than three months. But then came the questions. Was this study a fluke? Was it because it was done during the colder months and... Was it really the diet that did all of this, or was it something else? And Dr. Barnard, he said, well, okay, I hear you. So let's do this again and see what happens. Let's account for some of your concerns. And the results this time around leave little doubt that that first study was sound. And in fact, the medical community is hearing these findings loud and clear. Sir, good to see you again, and congratulations on the release of the study. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's an important thing, and I, I really appreciate you talking about it with me. Well, I'm very curious uh, because I know how excited you were for the first round of data that came up. Uh, what's new with this second round of data? What do we know now that we didn't? When we did the first round, it was very striking to me how powerful this effect was. You know, women have hot flashes. Uh, for some, that's no big deal. Some don't have them at all. But women who have them, you know, they're waking up two and three times a night, just soaking in sweat, changing their pajamas only to have it all start over again a couple hours later. And during the day, they can have them, you know, sometimes two or three a day, sometimes up to 15 or more than that a day. Really a, a terrible thing. And what we saw in, in the first round was that this combination that you just mentioned, it was it's a vegan diet, plant-based diet, very low in fat, plus the soybeans, half a cup of soybeans, it really knocked down the hot flashes, the moderate to severe hot flashes dropped by 84%. That was huge. Um, however, um, even though that was more than enough, uh, that we had enough participants to show statistically, this is not chance or very, very unlikely to be due to chance. There were certain questions that were lingering. And the first one, Chuck, is, is a kind of a real no-brainer. Um, we did the study in the first study in the fall of 2020. And I was really surprised by how strong this effect was. And I thought, is it because it's getting cooler? You know, maybe that's the reason they don't have hot flashes so much. Maybe it's just because it's fall, it's turning winter, and maybe that's why their hot flashes are, are going away. And we, that question came up. It, say with some more importance because some people in the control group who were not treated found their hot flashes getting a little better too. So I thought, hmm, I'd like to do this again, but in the spring when it's getting warmer, because if it's getting hotter outside and your hot flashes will still go away, that I think would be a big thing. So that was the first thing. And the second thing, Chuck, was there, um, there was something that we didn't do in the first study. Your gut microbiome, the bacteria in your gut, for some women, they will convert these natural compounds in the soy, the isoflavones in the soy, they'll convert them to a special compound called equal, E-Q-U-O-L, equal. And the thought was, that's the thing. It's the equal that's knocking out the hot flashes. And some people really believe that to be the case, but we hadn't tested equal in the first round. So I thought, all right, 
I'm going to take microbiome samples from everybody. I want to see if they can make Equal. And then I want to see if that makes a difference. And if, if that's the whole explanation, that's worth doing. So those are the, the big motivators for, for doing the repeat study. And what did you learn about the Equal? Was it the big granddaddy everybody expected to be? To my surprise, Chuck, um, no. Um, and the, the reason is, um, it, it wasn't necessarily that it didn't matter, but what we found is that the diet change was so powerful that women who produced Equal, and, and by that, I mean, they have the gut bacteria that are making Equal, their hot flashes pretty much disappeared. And the women who didn't make Equal, their hot flashes pretty much disappeared too. So the Equal itself wasn't really the explanation, it, whether you made Equal or not this combination of vegan low fat and, and soybeans just knocked the hot flashes out. And, and the, the overall result, by the way, putting it all together was that 88% of the moderate to severe hot flashes, the, one that, the ones that wake up at night, 88% of them were just gone. Um, so uh, there we are. I, I had my money on Equal <laughs> and it, it really doesn't matter, at least in this, in this population. Uh, silly kind of housekeeping question here. Obviously, we're talking about a second phase of the study. These are completely different participants than you had in the first uh, wave of, or I'm sorry, the first uh, set of trials, correct? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. We started over, we um, brought in a whole new group of, of people, and they were starting at square one. They had hot flashes that were driving them crazy. They were randomly assigned to either do the diet changes or to do nothing. And we kept in touch with both groups over the 12-week period. And in terms of the effectiveness of the dietary changes here um, it, it and, and the effect that they had on menopausal symptoms, the results pretty much mirrored themselves in the first and second set of trials, correct? Yeah, they, they did. And, and, you know, that's really important because in the end, combining everybody, we had 84 participants in the study. And one uh, reporter said, well, don't you want to do a bigger study? And I realized that a lot of um, maybe reporters or lay people think that a study should be huge. It should be thousands of people before you can rely on it. And, and if you don't mind, Chuck, I'd like to just maybe address that really quickly. Um, if you have an effect that's not really huge, um, something, you know, does vitamin C help prevent colds or something like that? And let's say it leads to a 10% reduction and it varies a lot from person to person. You need a fairly large study to show that there's a real effect. But let's say you have a study that, that shows something really dramatic um, in some cases, you just need a very, very small group of participants to show it. You know, if you show that the, the dead shall rise or, you know, whatever it is, um, if there's something just dramatic, um, you don't need a huge sample. So we do a technique called power analysis that takes um, the expected effect and the amount of variation you're expecting from person to person. You crunch those numbers, that tells you the number of people that you need. And in this case, um, we weren't too sure going into the first study how many we'd actually need. So we arbitrarily brought in 38 people. Um, but that turned out to be way more than enough because the effect was so strong. And then your statisticians crunch the numbers and they say, what are the, what's the likelihood that this could have been just a chance finding? And you come down to you know, one in 100, one in 1,000, and then you call it statistically significant. So 84 participants is far more than you need to show that there's uh, a real effect here. So so uh, we, we didn't do it again just because we needed numbers. We did it again to answer these scientific questions. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that is an excellent point. And, um, you know, journalists probably aren't the only ones who are wondering that very thing, because a lot of times you, you hear about a meta-analysis, which combines data from multiple studies, and then you get these sample sizes in the thousands. But you're absolutely right. You know, when you're seeing results time and time and time again, even in a smaller sample size that are so extreme that really doesn't leave much to question, that, that that data is just as solid as you were saying as a study that has three, four, five thousand participants in it. Yeah, that's right. And with observational studies, for example, at Harvard, they have the, um, the uh, nurses health study and the health professionals follow up study, the physicians health study. These, these are great studies. They're observational and altogether they have hundreds of thousands of participants in it because they're teasing apart many different things with their diets and their health over a long time. So that's that's appropriate. If you're doing a randomized clinical trial, you are zeroing in on a specific thing with um, a research method that can tease it out with far smaller numbers of people and, and much more uh, much more rapidly. All right, so let's talk about uh, the methods that were being tested in uh, the study here versus what the traditional uh, course of treatment is for a woman who is experiencing these menopausal symptoms, specifically hot flashes. I believe um, what we've talked about in the past is that uh, so many women, I mean, we're just talking thousands and thousands and thousands of women, um, if not more, are on hormone replacement therapy. So that's a big difference from what it was you were looking at in this trial, correct? Yes. Um, well, with regard to effectiveness, the effectiveness is about the same, um, which is a surprise because, you know, so many people, in, in fact, for many, many years, women have been told, go to the health food store and pick up a supplement of black cohosh or genistine or something like that. And they would take it and it wouldn't do very much. And so this was not putting the pharmaceutical products out of business. Um, however, putting this combination together, it it just knocked out the hot flashes like like a drug. Um, so the the, effect, the effectiveness is, is pretty similar. What is so different, Chuck, is the risk. Um, if a woman goes to the drugstore and she gets uh, hormone replacement therapy, it's typically a combination of estrogen and uh, a progestin. And she takes it home and she reads the little package insert. And it will say you're at a higher risk for stroke. She'll think, well, I, my grandpa died of a stroke. I don't want that. And then it'll say, and you're at higher risk of a blood clot, a deep vein thrombosis. And you're at higher risk for dementia. And at that point, she just sets it down and says, you know, I, I'm really not sure I, I want this at all. And then, it, then it, it goes further. You're at higher risk of breast cancer. You're at higher risk of a myocardial infarction. So she'll call her doctor and he'll say, well, yeah, those are all risks, but that's mostly for people who use it for a really long time and they use higher doses. So I'm only giving you a little bit. And of course, we'll have to stop it in a few years. And then she thinks, well, why am I taking this at all if I have to stop it in a few years? And, and um, Chuck, there was a study that it was published in Lancet in 2019, and they had looked specifically at breast cancer. And the numbers were that there had been about 20 million cases of breast cancer in Western countries since about 1990. So between 1990 and 2019. And they said that about a million of those cases they believed uh, were caused by hormone replacement. So the point I'm making is that these risks are not trivial. And, and, and while it makes perfect sense to minimize the dose and to have it for a really short period of time, I mean, the shortest period of time is, is zero. 
and the minimum, the smallest dose is zero. Yeah, uh, if you can do this with uh, more natural means. Right, and so then it brings me to the question about, well, now we know that you're prescribing in this particular study a low-fat plant-based diet, and the research that you and I have talked about now for many seasons on this show uh, goes to show that eating that type of low-fat plant-based diet can actually reduce your risk of all of those conditions you were just talking about. So that's another big victory here. Well, menopause is, yes, menopause is exactly the time when so many women are reassessing their health, they feel like I'm going through so many changes and what can I do that might help me to maybe lose some weight? Because now I feel like I'm gaining weight more easily um, than I was before. And then they're talking to the doctor who's measuring their cholesterol levels more uh, with more vigilance. Um, they're thinking about as I get older, maybe this is a time when I might be at higher risk for breast cancer. And, and of course that's true. And uh, I'm starting to think about my cognitive health and this diet that you're, using to knock out hot flashes happens to be exactly the diet that you would prescribe because a plant-based diet with soybeans reduces breast cancer risk. The soybean, high soybean intake reduces breast cancer, as you and I have discussed, maybe about 30%, something like that. Um, it reduces the risk of heart disease. It reduces the risk of all of these things and is likely um, going to reduce the risk of dementia according to the best evidence that we have. So all the side effects are good ones. And even if a woman didn't have hot flashes, this is a good diet to be on. And uh, just a couple more questions here. I want to talk specifically about those results uh, in the press release that was sent out um, and crossed my desk. You, you said, and I quote, we do not fully understand yet why this combination works, but it seems that all three of these elements are in fact key those being avoiding animal products, reducing fat, and making sure that you're eating soybeans as well. If you take one of those out of the equation, uh, did you test for that or was it all three and then a complete placebo? Um, it was uh, all three and versus, um, no, I wouldn't call it a placebo because the women just didn't get any treatment at all. Um, however, in the course of the study, what we did notice is that some women were getting in effect really fast. Um, by fast, I mean within five, six days. Um, and often these were women who did the diet um, very carefully and without any kind of messing up a little bit. Um, by, by the way, being vegan is surprisingly easy for women who have never thought about this. Being vegan is easy. Having the soybeans is remarkably easy because women thought, I never ate these before, but I cooked them up. And you know, they go just like pine nuts on my salad or I blend them into my smoothie or, or put them in a soup. And women found lots of ways of having them and they really liked them. Um, some of them would have them toasted like um, dry roasted peanuts. It's, it's like a snack. So they found that cool. But Chuck, the hardest part, the really tough part for some of the women was the fact that we would reduce fat content. And which is a funny thing because grains don't have any, really much of any fat. They have a little bit, not much. Beans have almost no fat. Vegetables have almost no fat. That's true of fruits. The whole reason why it's hard to reduce fat intake is because factories that are making your vegan pizza or your vegan lasagna can't resist dumping oil into it or frying things or something like that. So um, our culture has really steered us toward a lot of added fat that, that uh, Mother Nature wouldn't have, wouldn't have had for us. And, and, you know, the surprising thing now in, in my years of eating a plant-based diet is that 
once you're able to eliminate that and start doing a little bit of cooking for yourself, you don't miss that oil. You don't miss the fat. And as a matter of fact, when you do indulge and you eat something, at least in my experience, that has it, you kind of get this sheen inside of your mouth. It's like an oil slick in there. And you're like, that is not nearly as good as I used to remember it being. So and just something interesting there, but that's a topic for another show. Well, um, but Chuck, let me, let me rip off that for just a second, if you don't mind, because I think you're right. For sure. Um, and the first thing is there are some people who are just making a small change in their diet. They're going from, say, whole milk to skim milk. And at first, they do not like skim milk at all because it's watery, kind of blue colored and everything. But because it's lower in fat, it's not, it doesn't taste right for about two weeks. And then after that, their taste buds have actually physically accommodated to that lower fat taste. And then if you give them high, regular high fat milk again, they will hate it. It tastes like cream. You think, wait a minute, your whole life it was fine. Now you can't drink it. So your taste buds adjust. And just as you're saying that you come to prefer that cleaner taste. The other place where you discover it is when you're washing your dishes. Um, you're washing up and you notice this doesn't take any time at all because there's no <laughs> grease on anything um, until if there is some um recipe or something that you're having where you're noticing the spoons and the plates are greasy kind of like they were when you might have been a meat eater or something like that that's not only just an index of how much trouble you got to go through in the kitchen that's also a sign of what's happening in your body that uh, same greasy stuff that's on your spoon is now in your esophagus in your digestive tract working its way into your coronary arteries too Mm, the greasy spoon, not just a restaurant, <laughs> not just in your kitchen. It's inside you as well, my friends. Um, and my final question to you is this. Uh, what other questions are still left lingering there? What is still unanswered that you would like to, to shore up a little bit? Okay. Well, there are two things. One is some um, doctors have said, well, wait a minute. To get an approval for a drug for hot flashes, you focus on women who have a lot of hot flashes, seven or eight a day or more. And they'll say, well, Dr. Barnard, you really allowed women to come in as long as they had at least two hot flashes a day. So they thought maybe that's not, not as good. Um, the reason we did that is we wanted to take women who had the normal experience of hot flashes, whether they had a few or had a lot, how did it work? And there we found that 88% of all hot flashes were just, or the frequency was dropped by 88%. However, uh, we did a sub-analysis of those women who had at least seven hot flashes a day, the, the more frequent ones. And the question was, would this work as well within that group? Because that's the group that the FDA wants to target. And we didn't have a huge number of women in that group, but we had enough that we could do some statistics. And the answer was their hot flash frequency dropped by 93%. And if you can imagine what it feels like to be a woman who's getting these whacked in the head, you know, seven times a day or eight or nine or 15, we had some just very, very frequent. And to have them drop by more than 90%, it is like... Um, it's just such a wonderful treatment. So one thing we could do is we could we could bring in more women who have just these very, very frequent hot flashes just to satisfy any critics. But the other thing really, Chuck, I mean, we've already proved that it works. What I want to do now is I want to look at conditions other than menopause that, hot, that cause hot flashes. A woman has been diagnosed with breast cancer. She goes to see her oncologist who knows that estrogens are pushing that cancer. And so the doctor wants to do something to stop her estrogenic function. As soon as they do that, her hot flashes just come out and she's miserable. And she says, well, can I have HRT to knock out my hot flashes? And the doctor says, are you crazy? That's going to make your cancer progress. So she's got a fan 
She's got the air conditioning up full blast and she's got nothing else at a time when she is panicked and nervous about her own survival. I would like to use this dietary intervention for people who have hot flashes as a result of medical treatment, because it would be really good to see if it works. If it does, it also happens to be exactly the diet that women with breast cancer want to adopt for, for reasons of managing their cancer or reversing their cancer to the extent that they can. Um, plant-based, very low in oil, and have the uh, soybeans every single day. So those are things that we want to, want to uh, tackle. And just maybe one last thing. There's been a really terrible drama in Japan. As you know, the, the, the diet has been westernizing for years. And what we've seen is that in Japanese populations, where there was really virtually no hot flashes back in the 60s, 70s, I mean, if women had them, they were rare. Probably 80% of women, 85, never had them at all. Um, then as the diet westernized, they got them quite frequently. When researchers look at young Japanese women, I'm talking about a woman of 30, 35, they are not eating the way their great-grandmothers ate. It is not a rice-based diet with lots of tofu and vegetables and little or no meat and no dairy. They have gotten this message that you need dairy, you need meat, you need all this stuff, you need to eat the way Americans eat, especially if they're in, involved in sports. They're told, you eat like those Americans. And these women have far more hormonal imbalances and problems than their forebears had. So I would really love to do more investigations, frankly, of the populations that taught us about this in the first place, to see if maybe going back to a more traditional diet or going beyond to an entirely plant-based diet might help them too. Well, I think both of those are fantastic ideas and I would absolutely love to see that come to fruition and, and see some data out there because those are both fascinating things. And, and I think that, you know, as uh, that, but, you know, I mean, but it's, it's not just the hot flashes. I mean, as you, as you were talking about, you look at what happens when that standard American diet or that standard Western diet infiltrates uh, what had been a particularly healthy country. You see what happens there with all kinds of illnesses. Um, just my lay hypothesis here, I don't see any reason why you can't replicate the kind of success that you saw in the study here, the WAVES trial. I don't think that, you know, there's any reason why you couldn't see that kind of success applied to other conditions as well. So, by the way, there's a link for you to uh, check out the study for yourself right now in the episode notes, as well as an opportunity for you to pick up your body imbalance, Dr. Barnard's latest book, where uh, you really had the opportunity to go in depth about all kinds of hormonal related conditions. I mean, that book was nothing but hormones. And in, in a funny way, that book actually inspired this study. Um, there was a woman named Betty who read that book um, around, around the time the pandemic began. And she read the menopause chapter and she got in touch with me and she said, I, I put your recommendations to work and my hot flashes were gone. It was just a matter of days. And I, to tell the truth, I was surprised by how quickly the results were there because I didn't expect it to be that strong. And so I, I actually made her tell me exactly how she interpreted what I, what I had written in your body and balance. She said, well, I was exactly vegan. You know, I didn't have any animal products at all. I kept oils really, really low. And I had soybeans. And so I said, tell me, you know, what brand did you use? She said, I got Laura brand soybeans from Amazon. How did you cook them? I cooked them in my uh, instant pot. How long? 40 minutes. And she, she told me all the details. And so based on her experience that was so profound, I thought, well, we really need to do this study. So um, that's why we did it. And we actually tested Betty's diet as our, as our model.
And uh, I'll be darned, it, it turns out to really be very, very effective. And, and uh, a number of people have heard about this and they've heard about it on the exam room um, and put it to work and said, I was really skeptical. How can something that easy be, be you know, as, as, as effective as a drug? But, but you know, Chuck, you see this all the time. You talk with, with people um, who have done Dean Ornish's diet and other things, and they didn't really think that these results could be as strong for them as they are for the people in the studies, but, but they are, and it's so encouraging to see. are some of the big takeaways that I have from the study. The women who came in who were having the most hot flashes were also the most likely to find relief by switching to a plant-based diet and loading up on soy. So I'm reading these results from the study. It showed that the decrease in moderate to severe hot flashes in the intervention group was 88%. That's pretty good. So you're talking about going from an average of five hot flashes a day to just about 0.6. So maybe one every other day or so. 88% decrease. That's really good. But for women who came in having seven or more hot flashes a day, that dropped by 93%, going from nearly 11 hot flashes per day down to just about a half of one as well. So every other day again. And that, my friends, is 93% relief. That is amazing. And in case you were wondering about the quality of the data here, how well people were screened, well, it's actually really difficult to become accepted for one of these studies. So in this case, Nearly 1,700 women applied, but only 84 met the criteria and made the cut. That's just a 5% acceptance rate. And that is a big part of how you arrive at quality data with successful results. And speaking of success... A five-star health success is where we celebrate the incredible ways that your health has improved with this show. SJE Dancing in Australia left a five-star rating for the Exam Room podcast and this incredible update on Apple Podcasts. They write, I was 70 years old when my daughter came to my husband and I and told us that she wanted to be vegan. As the cook in the house, I began to research vegan on the web. I eventually found Chuck, The Exam Room Podcast, and Dr. Barnard. And I started watching YouTube videos and reading books and became plant-based. I then lost my prescription medicines and regained my energy and found exercise to actually be enjoyable. Most of all, after joining the gym, I regained a better shape and also my self-esteem. <laughs> My husband now says he's going to live to be the oldest man in the world, and I truly believe that the way he and I live now, this could be possible. And I also feel like I could be alive right by his side. Finding your self-esteem and your health is amazing. I'm telling you, SJE, I am 13 years into this journey now myself. And it never gets old, 
every day is like starting brand new and fresh with so much gusto and energy and zeal for life that I truly believe that while even if you may not live forever, the studies show you'll probably have quite a few more days to enjoy with this new way of eating. So I am so very happy for you, SJE, and thank you so very much for sharing your story with us. And if you would like to share your own five-star health success, it's really easy to do. All you need to do is hop over onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your shows, leave a five-star rating for the Exam Room Podcast, and in that little text box where you can write a review, tell us how your own health has improved, just like SJE. Tell us how your life has improved with the Exam Room Podcast and share your story with the other Exam Roomies. Inspire them as well and show them that nothing is impossible. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, our good buddy, he will be back on the next episode of the show. So join us for the Exam Room Live Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. You can also send me your questions ahead of time on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I am at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And if you can't join us live on Wednesday, the replay, no problem, right back here Thursday on the podcast. And for today... That is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Drs. Hanna Kaliova and Neil Barnard for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>